Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday night of Ryder Cup week, and I want to make it clear up top that this is not a normal episode of the Ryder Cup run. Those of you who listen know that the usual format is that we do a deep dive into a specific Ryder Cup from modern history, but just so happens that this week we're staring down the barrel of the next Ryder Cup. I brought all my podcasts here to Wisconsin, where I'll be covering the event for Golf Digest and for my book. And if the microphone is here and the mixer is here, well, we may as well get some use out of them. And there is an awful lot to talk about. So assuming I don't get interrupted by angry roommates or anything like that, we're going to call this and any other episodes this week the Whistling Straits interlude. It is not canon. We're not even doing the usual intro. No music. In the history books, this will be a separate entry, but it's sharing the same platform. And before we begin, I mentioned my book. I'll say again that if you enjoy these podcasts and you enjoy the Ryder Cup, you can now pre-order my book, and doing so is very helpful to me in various strange ways that I don't quite understand but are part of the voodoo of the publishing world. We'll have a link in the description, and you can also go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or IndieBound, wherever you go, type in the cup they couldn't lose and order it that way. As you saw in the title, the topic I thought would be most interesting tonight is this idea of trying to predict the winner. A big part of this podcast is looking back, analyzing the decisions and strategy and blunders and even the luck of captains and players from the past and the dynamics that went into making one team win and the other lose. And so you read enough of this stuff and listen to enough and formulate enough theories, which we all love to do when the Ryder Cup comes around. There's nothing better. And inevitably, you get to a point where you ask yourself a question. Can I use everything I know to look at the evidence today in 2021 and at least come up with a solid theory beforehand about who's going to win this year? And I'll tell you right away, the problem with this thought exercise is that you're going to find a lot of conflicting evidence for both sides. And it's going to sound good on both sides. I'll put my cards on the table. About a month ago, this felt to me like a European year. But now we're here, the week of the Ryder Cup. I know a little bit more after traveling with a tour for the playoffs and seeing what's happening in Whistling Straits. And now I'm pretty convinced the U.S. is going to win. But my brain is almost like a mood ring right now because it changes. It goes back and forth between red and blue. And I think I'm solidly on the American side at the moment. And I think I'll stay that way till Friday. But there's a lot of uncertainty. The other big problem is that when we look at old Ryder Cups, it's possible to analyze them with a pretty high degree of accuracy because there's so much information out there. And there's going to be a lot of information about this Ryder Cup too, but a lot of it's not going to come out until after. That's just the way it works. Some of it will be the week after, some will be over the next month or so. And there may be things, there often are, that take years to come out. It could be in some interview when these players are a little older, don't care so much about protecting information, and are more interested in telling their stories. So you have to deal with that too. You're trying to solve this puzzle, but you don't quite know the shape of it yet, so it's like you're blindfolded. Just as if, for instance, what really happened when Steve Stricker had his conversation with Kepka and DeChambeau. When the U.S. team met up last week for practice, were the dinners and the hangouts awkward because of that feud? Is it going to take a toll? that they'll all be asked about it a million times this week? Or on the European side, how good is Padraig Harrington at relating to his players, at communicating with him? We know he and Sergio Garcia didn't get along for the longest time. Have they buried the hatchet? Or is it kind of a tentative truce? I don't know the answers to these questions, and you really can't learn by asking right now because you get boilerplate responses, and we're certainly not going to know before Friday. 
There's a lot we're missing, and some of it may look in the future glaringly obvious, like, yes, of course that was a red flag. How did you miss that? But we don't know yet. And the funny thing about this kind of analysis, and I should probably put that word analysis in air quotes because it might be too fancy a word for what is at its core just basically speculation, but the funny thing is that more information clarifies things after the fact because you know what happened. You see where each bit fits in the narrative, which stuff was important and which stuff was noise. But more information beforehand can actually muddle things because how do you evaluate it? So if we get through this mini episode and you think, okay, absolutely nothing is clear to me. This hasn't helped at all. I'm more confused than when it started. Well, don't say I didn't warn you, but we'll do our best. I want to start with Europe. I have a piece coming out Wednesday in Golf Digest about why America will win. Daniel Rapoport, my colleague, is writing the opposite piece, why it's a European year, why they're going to win. So let's put ourselves in Daniel's shoes right now to start. He's my housemate this week, so maybe I can attempt a mind meld here. But let's try to figure out why Europe will win. You don't have to go far, do you? They are 9-3 in the last 12 Cups, 12-5 since 1985, haven't lost at home since 1993, and here's the pattern of how they've performed in America. Ready for this one? 1983, loss. 1987, win. 91, loss. 95, win. 99, loss. 2004, back on even years because of 9-11, win. 2008, Valhalla, Paul Lazinger, loss. 2012, Medina, the comeback, win. 2016, loss. 2021, well, follow the pattern. This one's a win. I actually don't find that pattern incredibly convincing. It's just a funny numbers coincidence. But more broadly, it's significant in that they win 50% of the time in America and have for about 30 years. So just on the history, you say, okay, there's a chance here. A lot better chance than America would have over there, right? And then you look at why they win on the road half the time and why they're perfect at home for the last 30 years almost. Whatever elements you want to pinpoint, Wherever you land on this, that stuff is still going to be true in 2021. It hasn't changed. They've got experience, and not just experience, but winning experience. The U.S. sometimes has bad experience and make the mistake of thinking that's a valuable thing, but Europe actually has winning experience. They are absolutely loaded with veterans who have been winning Ryder Cups for their entire careers. They've got the captain's template. That's still there, and Pottering Harrington maybe is one of the great unanswered questions about this Ryder Cup. We don't know exactly what kind of captain he'll be, and it's sort of hard to tell yet, but he said he's going to follow that template. Why wouldn't he? Then you have something more intangible, but I think pretty provable in the end, that while the Americans want to win as badly as the Europeans do, that's a misnomer that they don't care, they don't want to win. Don't believe that. They want to win just as badly, but... The Europeans have somehow mastered the art of turning that passion, that desire to win, into effective team chemistry. Even in cases where some people don't like other people. While the Americans seem to be stuck on their own little islands, unable to bond, unable to create that team energy that pays dividends on the course. And you start getting into this stuff and you start asking why, and it gets into sociological theories that might be legitimate or might be far-fetched and theoretical, and I don't want to fly off the deep end here. But I do have certain thoughts about aspects of the respective cultures that may contribute to this difference. Let's do a hypothetical here. Picture yourself in a gathering 
of 20 American sports fans at some event. And I'm assuming a lot of you listening to this are American. This probably is more effective if you are. But picture yourself in that group and you have a goal. You have a job to get everyone to sing a song together. Just a normal sports song kind of supporting your team. How do you think that would go with those 20 Americans? It would be awkward. It would be difficult. And if you're like me, that job of trying to get them to sing sounds like a nightmare. It makes me physically uncomfortable to think about it. But then European fans do it all the time. It's like second nature to them. Somebody starts singing and everybody joins in. You can, you can experience that in America. You go to any supporters pub for a soccer match in a city on a weekend. I've done it. And I've sung along sometimes because I like the idea of it. But even then, when I do, when I kind of join in, there's part of me that feels separate, like I'm faking it. It feels a little weird to me. And I know I am faking it. It's not natural. But there they are, the British fans, the European fans, singing away, full-throated, not even a little bit self-conscious. I bring that up because I think you can see that same dynamic play out in Ryder Cup teams, where the Americans want to win so badly but it can't give themselves to each other in that way. It can't establish that collective energy because there's some kind of repression mechanism at play. Europe can do it. They do it on and off the course. Remember Molinari and Fleetwood? Remember that video they did after 2018 where they're in bed together with the Ryder Cup? It was funny, but can you imagine two American players doing that? Unthinkable. And don't forget, too, golf in America self-selects for a particular kind of person. Maybe from a wealthy background, often that's the case. Maybe they're not temperamentally suited to team sports in the first place. I talked to so many American golfers when I wrote Slaying the Tiger in 2014 that left team sports very early as kids in childhood because it drove them nuts to have to rely on somebody else. And in golf, it's just them. They like that. They like that they don't have to count on anyone. They can live and die by their own skills. So you take whatever limitations Americans have in the first place culturally, And here in golf, you have people who are exaggerated forms of that. It is a big challenge and a big ask to get them to come together as a true team, even for a week in the Ryder Cup. I think most of you listening to this podcast also listen to No Laying Up, so it's not like I need to recommend them. But if you haven't listened to their Ryder Cup medley episode, it was pretty recent. It's a great one. And Chris Solomon brought up two points that really resonated with me. The first one was a story of him hanging out with a European Solheim Cup team after they won a couple weeks ago, watching them celebrate and have fun and be goofy and have each other's backs. While in the American locker room, again, it's just separate islands of people, everybody doing their own thing, going their own way. And with Europe, a couple of the players were hanging back and not dancing or whatever, apparently in the celebration, as Solomon tells it. And almost like some sort of unconscious social instinct, the rest of the team pulled them in insisted on pulling them in like they recognized people trying to be a part maybe as a little first division in a team and they just wouldn't have it and i'm not doing the full story justice you should listen to chris tell it but it's this really thoughtful look at a scene that most of us including me won't witness from the inside but we hear about all the time this sort of team spirit and it's worth listening to worth digesting and the other thing chris brought up is from 2016 i had forgotten this uh roy rory mcelroy the americans win uh, and it was almost like they didn't know what to do on the 18th green after they had won. And Rory was basically teasing them saying, what, did you forget how to celebrate? It's a similar thing, isn't it? There's something restricted about our side, even when we win. 
And if you read Brooks Kepka's interview in Golf Digest with Matt Rudy, you go further and say, I'm not sure a lot of these guys even like team sports or team events. That's not going to change in 2021. So there you have a good argument for Europe. And there are also some arguments against the U.S., not just pro-Europe. You've got the Brooks Bryson stuff, which we talk about endlessly. And I think the critical part here is that there's apparently this tentative piece, but Kepka has made it clear that it's a piece that will last exactly one week. He's not really extending an olive branch, not going the extra mile to bury the, the feud or whatever. And when you look some, at some of the past drama of U.S. Ryder Cup teams, from the Brooks DJ fight in Paris to Patrick Reed going to the New York Times to rag on Furyk to all the Watson Mickelson stuff in Glen Eagles, you start to think, here we go again. This is going to be this year's toxic thing. On Sunday, we'll have recriminations and leaked stories, and it's the same old dysfunctional patterns repeating themselves. What else? Well, the U.S. has six rookies, which means there's a massive experience gap. Europe had six rookies in 2016, and look what happened there. They got blown out in Hazeltine. And finally, there's a course, which is not a Lynx course. Be careful of people making that claim. It's just not true. It's played through the air. But because of the bunker complexes and the lake and the patches of juniper, you can only mow the rough so much. So if you think the U.S. benefits from forgiving fairways that let them bomb and gouge, and the Europeans are better on tight fairways with thick rough that puts a premium on accuracy, this is probably about as good as they could hope for on American soil. But again, I would use caution if you go there because Whistling Straight still rewards distance to a huge degree. and They have mowed the rough down and the setup isn't going to be pro-European in the least. It may just be slightly less anti-European than a place like Hazeltine. Okay, so we say all this, it all sounds logical. So then the question is, okay, Shane, why do you think the U.S. is going to win anyway? And the answer is going to sound extremely simple and anticlimactic, and I wish I had something more profound. But from everything I've seen, provided you've got a competent captain, which you do in Steve Stricker, I think, and a talented team, which the U.S. has, I'm of the school of thought right now that home course advantage trumps everything. And again, this is a matter of weighing the different elements. Nothing I said above favoring the Europeans is wrong. But this isn't a matter of stacking advantages against each other and saying, oh, the Europeans have 12 advantages, the Americans only have five, so the Europeans are going to win. No. Certain advantages matter more, sometimes way more. And I think home course advantage is so important and has been even more so, it's always been that way, but even more so for about a decade that it overrides almost everything else. Let me throw some quick numbers at you. The last time the visiting team in a Ryder Cup took a lead into Sunday singles was 2004. It's been seven Ryder Cups since, since then, and the closest margin has been 9-7 in favor of the home team. That happened once in 2008. Two other times, it's been 9.5 to 6.5, and, and four times, it's been 10 to 6. 10 to 6 seems to be a very common margin these days. In those pair sessions over those seven Ryder Cups, the home team won 60% of all matches. If you add singles into it, they won 58% of all matches. In six of those matches, the home team won the whole thing. And of course, the anomaly, the seventh match, was Medina. And Medina becomes important in how we conceptualize the modern Ryder Cup. The question you have to confront is, how do you place Medina in history? Is it an example of European fortitude, American incompetence, which has become a common narrative, and not without reason? 
or is it a fluke? We're not going to turn this into a debate on what actually happened there. That episode will be coming up. But I'll just give you my opinion, which is that Davis Love, I think, was a superior captain to Jose Maria Oathabo. He had a better plan. And yes, you can quibble with some decisions he made on Saturday and Sunday, but ultimately they call this the miracle at Medina for a very good reason, which is that it's this wild aberration, an anomaly, whatever you want to call it. It took an incredible amount of luck for Europe to pull this off. The luck started Saturday night, continued into Sunday, and the highlights, if you watch them now, are still mind-blowing just how much had to go right for the Europeans, right down to Justin Rose making his miracle putt on 17. And if you subscribe to that belief as I do, and you think this is a weird one, Medina was the weirdest we've seen, only Brookline comes close, but this is even weirder because it happened on the road, well, then you say, what if it had just been a normal Sunday? What if singles went, let's say, 6-6 to and America won 16-12? to Well, if that happened, the last three Ryder Cups, I'm sorry, the last six Ryder Cups are 3-3, three and three, with the home team winning each one, five of them by a pretty significant margin. In other words, we're one miraculous, strange Sunday from that reality. And if that were the case, if Medina hadn't happened, the miracle, what would people be saying about the Ryder Cup now? Well, I think there'd be a lot more talk than there is that we are in the era of an incredible home course advantage, almost that we're in the era of the home blowout. You look at those numbers I mentioned before Sunday singles and you think, okay, there's a very good reason to think America will hold a lead after the pair sessions are over. It's happened seven straight times. And if they hold a lead after pairs and they're playing at home, they're good. They outmatch the Europeans, at least on paper. Why would you ever bet on them to give up a lead? Maybe that sounds reductive or oversimplistic. But I'm not sure it's more complicated than that. Home course advantage is the single greatest predictive factor we have since 2006. Rory McIlroy knows it. He said in his Tuesday press conference earlier today that it's getting even harder to win on the road. By the way, it's never been easy. And Padraig Harrington agreed with him that it's getting harder. Harrington credited the course setup mostly, but I'm not 100% sure I'm with him on that one. I think it played a huge role, course setup, in 2018 because the U.S. was so underprepared for a course that valued accuracy over distance, which is rare. And Jim Furyk's captain's picks weren't suited to the Golf National. They didn't prepare. Nobody had really been there except Justin Thomas, and they were slaughtered. But I don't think that's a common situation. The gap that existed between U.S. and European players in the 80s isn't around so much anymore. The game's more global. Everybody's playing in America for the most part. The styles are more similar. And I think the course setup, while it's exploited well by the captains and the statistical analysts who work for them, it's not the be-all and end-all here. I actually think, and here I'm departing into the realm of theory and opinion, but I think it's the fans. This is not quantifiable, which makes it tough. But when you see the intensity of home fans at these events and how much stress that puts on players who aren't used to having people root against them, maybe you can tell on TV and you can definitely tell in person, this is a cauldron of stress. A British reporter today asked Rory, he said, you were so animated in 2016, you took the team on your back, are you going to do that again? And Rory, who by by the way looked very tired and downbeat today, make of that what you will, said absolutely not, it exhausted me in 2016. I lost all my energy against Patrick Reed by the time they played in Sunday singles. 
And the fact is you can't put yourself up against 50,000 fans every day and expect to come out on top. And that's just one example of how this kind of thing wears you down. Important to know too, again, golfers aren't used to this. There are no road games in golf until you get to the Ryder Cup. And so, you know, you could look at a sport like basketball or football or whatever the case may be, and you say, well, you know, these guys, there is a home field advantage. We all know that, but they're also used to it because they've been doing it their whole lives and they do it multiple times a season. Golfers aren't used to that. And so it becomes more difficult, more profound. In college basketball, home court advantage appears to be worth anywhere from about three to five points, which is a big deal and can be decisive. And that's in the sport, again, where the players are used to playing road games. If we look at the Ryder Cup in the last six years, the cumulative score of both teams is Europe 85.5, U.S. 82.5, pretty close to dead even. But the home team wins by an average score of almost exactly 16 to 12, which means home course advantage in that set of six Ryder Cups is worth about four points of total margin. Doesn't sound huge, but it is. So once you establish that, that America might have the edge just from playing at home in Whistling Straits, you look at things that might tip the balance back. You start to look for evidence against your argument. First, you look at the captain. From what I've seen, and again, we only have so much information, I'm pretty impressed with Steve Stricker. His captain's picks followed his sort of horses for courses plan, picking guys who are suited to Whistling Straits, experience or no experience, and he passed over guys like Webb Simpson and Patrick Reed in the process. He keeps harping on this idea of preparation. Jordan Spieth called him the most prepared captain he's played under, and it seems like the Americans know exactly who they'll be playing with on Friday already, at the very least, maybe Saturday too. And he's not the kind of captain that's going to throw them any last-minute curveballs, which players do not like. We saw that in Glen Eagles. We've seen it plenty of times in Ryder Cup history. Stricker seems to be listening closely to scouts consulting his stats guys, who were so effective in 2016. That's positive. He's cut out almost every extracurricular requirement that American Ryder Cup teams have dealt with in the past, all the galas and dinners, and he's had an assist from COVID on that. This is a big deal because Ryder Cup week isn't always pleasant for American golfers, as we learned yet again from that Brooks Kepka interview we referenced before. But part of the task force's recommendations after 2014 was, come on, give these guys a break. You're wearing them down, and Stricker has taken that to the next level. From what I can tell, he seems to be a consummate planner, and I'm not sure Padraig Harrington is. Victor Hovland today said the Europeans don't know their partnerships yet, which is interesting. I'm not saying it's a red flag, but it is something to at least notice. I guarantee you previous European captains have had more complete plans by this point. Their players have known what they're going to do. And on background, other people have told me that they're not 100% sure Harrington is the best communicator with his team. He's a guy who talks a lot, but he might be kind of an individualist and not fully in tune with his guys. And perhaps the vice captains he picked don't exactly fill his blind spots very well. Again, I don't know if that's fully true. I've heard it and I'm sharing it. Then you have the players. And even with someone like Colin Morikawa being a little out of form, and by the way, he was one of the few guys I saw out grinding away on Monday. He's clearly trying to prepare for this. The U.S. is deeper, longer, and simply better suited to the course than the Europeans, who have their own out-of-form players in Fitzpatrick, Hatton, Westwood, arguably more than the U.S. So you're looking at a situation with better players, better captain, home course advantage for America. 
And that's, again, from my vantage, and I know I sound like a broken record, but that vantage does have limitations. Still, trying to weigh everything, this all seems very important on the American side. More important than what we saw as the European strengths. More important by a lot. I could go deeper into all this stuff, but I don't think I need to. What I've seen so far has me pretty convinced that the history shows us the path this is heading down. I think America's going to win, and I don't see any reason to think it will be particularly close. Going by the averages, my thought is that the U.S. comes away with somewhere between 15.5 and 16.5 points and wins a relatively comfortable Ryder Cup. I am interested to hear what people think about this because I'm very much open to being wrong here, and I think it's fascinating what people weigh as the decisive factors. I'm hearing a lot of emphasis this week on Europe's chemistry. The videos we've seen the mem having a good time, inspirational videos, and this kind of overriding belief that they've got the secret mojo the Americans lack. And I think that might be an overcorrection to decades of Americans kind of not realizing what they had on us. And it might be ignoring that what the last six Ryder Cups have shown us. And with one wild Sunday anomaly, they've shown us exactly what to expect. So be in touch on Twitter if you want. Mock me if this turns out to be totally wrong. But that is the beauty of the Ryder Cup. In three days, everything is possible. But for now, we get to debate those possibilities endlessly and let our brains run wild. My brain keeps taking me back to America, and now I'm on the record. We'll talk again soon.